Good afternoon. This is Trina Green-Brown with Harrington for Liberation. I'm here with the amazing Jacqueline Roebuck-Sacco, who recently launched Black Activist Mothering, a community approach to igniting activism centering the wisdom of black activist mothers from Harriet Tubman to Valerie Castile. As a black activist mother herself, Jacqueline has been trailblazing in the fields of restorative justice, community-based educational leadership, and of course, she's a radical mother of six for over the past 20 years. Thank you, Jacqueline, for joining me. Thank you, Trina, for having me. Such an honor. I'm so excited to, to be talking to someone who's like doing similar work around activism and motherhood and, and blackness, like just those three words, bam. Hello. There we go. <laughs> I'm so glad to be connected. And special shout out to Eb Brown of Care Strategies who hooked us up. Check out Care yes. Strategies. Um, so um, tell me a little bit about yourself, your family. I know you have a beautiful family of six children, and I'm one of six myself, so excited to just learn a little bit more about you as a, as a black mother. Okay, yes. So I have six children. I have four boys. Uh, My oldest are twin boys. Um, They're 20. And then I have uh, two sons after that, 16 and 14. And my youngest are also twins. And they're girls. They are 12. And Um, yeah, I was gonna say amazing. Two sets yeah. of twins. That's amazing. Uh, my family has it, twins that run in their family. I have twin sisters, too. They're the babies as well. So twin girls are the babies in my family. So just just acknowledging the connection. Yeah, yeah. Twins are fascinating. They are fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, about It's hard. It's, yeah, I find it hard to talk about myself. So um, currently... I'm really excited about this project by Activist Mothering, and it was born out of uh, work that I was doing um, with my dissertation. And it was born from just not – I didn't find enough out there to really describe myself. That was, one, to do this work. And then, two, the reason why I needed to describe myself was because I didn't feel like I could write a dissertation without situating myself within the problem that I'm talking about. Um, and that's, you know, this idea that as black folks, especially black women, when we are experiencing problems or discussing problems, typically, you know, we're discussing it from a position of being both um, a participant and an observer, right? And so they talk about that a lot in research, but really with black women, we don't have a choice and how to be a participant. So we are participants not by choice, but we're participants because we have to be participants. And then also when we're observing, if we're observing a problem of inequity or, or social injustice, we're observing it um, from this position of de-witnessing. So we're observing it because we're also probably experiencing it or someone that we know um, is experiencing it. Um, And the more I looked at, uh, you know, when you're doing your dissertation, when you're writing, you know, your uh, responsibility is to kind of follow the thread to where it begins, you know, find out where this came from. And the more work that I did around black women, a couple of things came up. One there really hasn't been a lot of work out there um, 
in the academy world around black women. And the work that has been done is not um, multifaceted. It's, and it's definitely not multi-perspective. So it's usually talking about women who are classified within their system as um, low socioeconomic status, um, so poor women, or we're talking about middle-class black women or upper-middle-class black women. And so it's not really this variety of perspectives. And now you have a lot um, of work out there around black women who are not fixed-gendered um, and black women who are doing just having a life in a different way. And, again, while there have been work out, it wasn't a lot. It wasn't robust like it really should be because, as a group, we are very, very robust, right? Um, I don't know, and it's just the more I looked at it, the more I said, wait a minute. So not only is this work that we've always done um, since women of African descent in America um, came to this or was brought here, enslaved here um, in America, but there's always been this activity. It's always been this activism and this resistance to oppression. And then when I looked at that even more, I was like, wait a minute, it's really a framework of how we do this. And I think um, when we were talking about this earlier, this idea of other mothering um, in the way that we accepted children across the spectrum, um, if, whether they were biologically connected to us or whether they were a neighbor's children or someone else's children that needed uh, support or needed nurturing. And then I said, well, that's even bigger because it's not even just about children. It's really about how we mothered a community. Um, and I was listening to, um, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to listen to um, M.K. Asante, um, his piece of work. It's not just an album because it's a book and everything, but called Buck. Have you had an opportunity to listen no. to that? No, oh, you must. Yeah, that's a must. So um, he has this work that's called Buck, and it's not, it's, um, I think, 12, 12 to 14 um, hip-hop tracks. But then it's also like a memoir of his life, so it's a book and a CD, right? But there's a song that he has on there or a track. I don't know, remember which number it is or even the title, but he talks about black women making quilts. And I really call it a quilt framework. So he first begins with, you know, black women created these quilts. And at first, you know, the first thing about the quilt, he says, is that they are resourceful. So, and he talked about how, you know, black women would take pieces of um, cloth from all different types of things that would be the scraps. And he calls it resourceful because he said it's the maximization of minimal resources, right? And then he says it was beautiful because once they started stitching those squares together, you know, it could just be colorfully vibrant. You know, they just made it beautiful. I remember my great-grandmother's um, sister was the quilt maker in the family. So everyone, everybody's child that was born received their own quilt. Um, and she actually put the, the the child's initials on the quilt. So she, she stitched the initials in it. So it was all this thing, and that's what he says. It's like it was beautiful, aesthetically beautiful. And then he said it was purposeful, and he talked about how quilts then were utilized as a freedom code. 
So it was a way of telling uh, slaves um, where the next Underground Railroad meetup would be, you know, how to get there, where other meetings would be, prayer meetings, different times that they would get together. So then it became the quilt making, again, now is purposeful. So it's gone beyond, you know, being something to keep you warm. Um, and then they just didn't want to stop there. It had to be cute, right? <laughs> so they made it cute. And then they turned around and used it as a coding mechanism that wasn't even discovered, I don't think, until after they started really reading the narratives of slaves. And then the last part he says is that it was emancipatory because if you were utilized the quilt to tell people where to meet up to get their freedom, then, you know, it was emancipatory. So, again, that's, to me, a tangible example of how black activism mothering is a concept, it's a framework um, of going up for the oppressed. And that's something from Townsend Gilk. Um, oh, she's now Reverend, Dr. Reverend Townsend Gilk. But she talked about this work in 1980, around 1983, 1980s, when she started interviewing black women um, who at that time were in their 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, but that were doing liberation work in the projects in New York, right? And so she found this way that women would do this community work, but the community work was always around nation building. Like it just wasn't about um, uh, making sure that their own children um, progressed, right? It was about that everyone, the entire community has to progress, and we see it too with the work in, with Septima Clark in the citizenship school, which really was the foundation for everything we know about the civil rights movement and the ways that they um, organized and got people together, um, again, to have this, again, a framework for emancipation, for liberation. Um, but in a nutshell, that's what it is. I feel like there's so much to tease out just in that one <laughs> answer. <laughs> I was like, hey, I keep up. I was like, wait, I want to ask a question about the quilt. I want to make a connection to the mother and other children. Uh, yeah, I was just like, wait, there's a lot of um, resonance <laughs> that probably was passed on from generation to generation, not even knowing the significance exactly. of, of quilts or of, um, blanket making. Um, um, so my older sister actually is actually makes blankets for folks. Um, she's wow. made blankets for my nieces and nephews for holidays. She gives out blankets that she makes. They're not necessarily quilts, but she makes blankets. And she like really intentionally tries to find a fabric or a theme or concept. Oh really. my gosh! Um, so yeah, just like thinking about her and like the the role that she's kind of played as far as being like um like a weaver. Um, not in, like, real weaving, but as, like, bringing us together because we sometimes disagree and she's the older sister and she's all about love and, like, relationships and staying together. And mm. so she's like, oh, it's okay. Like, let's just hug it out, you know? So just like that person <laughs> who's trying to always, like, just bring the love and weave it together. And even when it feels ruptured or, you know, there's this disconnected or, you know, we're having a riff or, you know, I'm to not talking to this sister. She'll be like, oh, no, 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 let's bring it together. Let's love it out. So just, like, the role of a weaver and thinking about her as well as um, she is my, we share the same father, um, but we have different moms. Um, mm -hmm. And at the same time, she is my full-blooded sister. And my mom um, took my oldest sister into, her, into, into our family. Um, 
since she was like 18 months, right? Like, so my sister, I didn't even know growing up that we didn't have the same mother per se, um, or that we had a different, she had a different mother, right? Because we do have the same mother. She calls my mom, well, we call her mama. Um, we all call mama, mama. And so that's who was in our house with us. And my sister would go visit her mom. Her mom would come over. Um, my sister would go with her, um, her mother's like family for family reunions and, like, we've spent time with them. We used to hang out with them. We still do. Like, they invite us to their church. So just, like, this this way of, mm. like, not necessarily having separate families, but that actually having multiple folks in our families made our family richer, um, that our family has a, a practice um, bringing in the in-laws, bringing in the, I guess, the exes is what they're probably mm-hmm. called, but, like, mm-hmm. that they're still family, right? I'm actually co-parenting multiple ways. Um I'm co-parenting my son with his father, who I'm no longer with, and I'm also co-parenting my stepdaughter with um, with my husband. And so, like, we're a blended family with, like, a double mix, right, that we have this family and that family and then our family together. Um, and we have had, you know, some great times of, like, being able to blend in families and bring it together. And there are some times where we wrestle and we struggle. Um, of trying to, like, have everyone see the value of having multiple folks influence our children's lives and try to see the good in that and not see it as a competitive thing or that somebody's trying to take someone else's place because my mom always taught me, like, that she could never be my sister's biological mother, and she always said that she didn't want to take over that place, that that's a special place that my sister would have with her mom, but that she wanted to be, uh, my mother wanted to be the best mother to her, um, and she didn't want her kids, she didn't want her to be felt like she was different when she was in our house. So, right, she was treated the same as all the other kids. Uh, my grandmother was the same way. Like, everybody came to my grandma's house to eat dinner. Like, if you came over and we were eating dinner, like, get a plate. Come on. Like, we didn't have a lot, but we made it stretch. So just some of the stories that she told about, like, just from a theoretical framework of you, like, naming some of the mm-hmm. concepts um, from these different pieces of work, like, totally resonate in terms of, like, the way that my grandmother has parented and mothered and the way my mother has mothered and hopefully the way that I'm trying to mother with my, with my mm-hmm. child and my stepdaughter and really just trying to have a cohesive family. Um, but, yeah, it's been, just, it's been a journey, and just to hear you say that makes me realize um, that it's not by happenstance, right? It's not mm. by, like, we just figured this out. Like, no, this is in our cellular DNA. This is the way that our yes. people, our mothers, black mothers, have always done this. Yeah, and it was really strange because, you know, there's a part of me that is very careful about um, uh, not wanting this to sound like, oh, this is the new thing, I've just discovered it. No, of course not, right? But what I am um, wanting to do is, as you say, really document um, and make, help folks make the connection. So I think if you can see that what you're doing um, has been done, and it was not only done, but it was actually a tradition, right? And it was a way that um, mothers behave, that black mothers behave. Um, I think it'll, it'll give us this sense of, because sometimes I can feel alone in parenting because, you know, I have six children, but I'm the only child. So I'm my mother's only daughter, um, my mother and my father's only daughter. And um, my mother has one sister, and then her, my aunt has one daughter, right? So it was very close-knit. So a lot of the stories we heard about 
and learned around um, other mothering really came from my great-grandmother, who came from 16 children. And just so happened that the aunt that made the quilts um, was my great-grandmother's oldest sister, who also took the children in um, when their mother passed. Uh, she was the oldest sister was already living with her husband somewhere else in North Carolina. And the story goes that my great grandmother was the one that wrote the letter to her oldest sister and said, look, you know, we're about to go to the orphanage. Um, we need to come. And of course, you know, she took the children in and then my great grandmother then took care of her nephew. Right. So it was just this way of, mothering that, again, had more a lot to do or more to do with just this biological sense of, you know, now I'm a mother. And so now these are the expectations um, to take care of this one child or this other child. Um, and then I think a lot of the shame that, you know, slavery is not our shame, right? Slavery mm-hmm. is not our shame. So one of the things that black women did in, around this whole way of um, – nursing um, the mistress's children, um, again, you know, we talk about, well, black women don't have love, you know, they're too aggressive, they're this, they're that. But no, but think about the love that had to transpire for a black woman to nurse the mistress's child, who you might get beat later, right? Or this mistress might be angry with you and something might happen to you, um, but you still, it was never taken out on the child. And I'm sure there were stories. I'm sure there was, you know, sisters that, you know, just had to do what they had to do. Enough had been enough. But, I mean, just as you would think it, you would have seen a large um, movement around resisting, you know, of nursing the mistress's children. Uh, but I haven't seen it. I haven't heard of anyone else bringing it up Um so I don't think that that was really a mass case. I think the the more of the reality was that that became a part of that type of mothering. Um, mm. Yes, yeah, so I think that that is the liberation piece. So I think <laughs> I think that you know when you think about mothering as an act of nation building, um, that becomes a process of parenting for liberation. Yeah, that's helpful because I was going to ask. So I'm glad you gave the example of black mothers, black women during while enslaved and held captive, a part of their responsibility being to nurse and caretake for white children, for the slave master's children. Um, and when I hear you say that black activist mothering is a concept or a framework that could be used for nation building, I get a little protective. So my flags go mm. up. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like, wait, <laughs> and this is probably, you know, I get a little uh, concerned and uh, flags go up and I get a little protective of like, well, I don't want, I feel like this is so sacred to black mothers, black women, black parenting, um, because our parenting has been degraded, eroded in the mainstream, right? Um, from the 1970s when Reagan started talking about the, the welfare queen and that we were just these bad mothers who neglected our children and only wanted to have babies for checks, you know, for welfare checks. You know, just like we um, as mothers, as women, as black women, as black mothers, have, our parenting has often been degraded so much that I'm a little protective of, like, actually now that I have something positive, right, positive meaning 
to to black mothering. Um, you're providing some fra some framework and you're providing some backstory and some history um, to let us see the beauty and the power in the way that we mother. In that that there's mm -hmm. some there's some pride in that. I mean, not that it didn't exist, but like you know, it's when we you know when you have data and information behind it to support it to be affirming and life giving. Um, that I get protective of that. Like I want that to come out and I want to be protective of it. Like I want to keep that for black women, which feels really really hard for me to say, but um, I wonder, like, how do you see it as a potential tool for nation building or for um, for community work? And does it look different in other communities, right? Like, how how is this framework used in black communities to uplift black communities and black families? Mm -hmm. um, and then if it was to be taken out into other communities, for example, mm -hmm. how, what would it look like? Okay, so I'm going to read to you. Um you sent me, I don't know if you remember, but you sent me a quote from Mia Birdsong. Do you remember sending me that quote? I do. Shout out to Mia okay. and Family Story. Yeah, so the quote is, and I use this quote in my keynote as well, um, to help with where we're going next. This is from the amalgamation of ancestral family ways and violent oppression. Black Americans have conjured deeper and more vast pathways for loving and caring for each other. Instead of casting black families as broken, America should sit at our feet and learn from us. So that was so powerful, and I used that in the keynote, and the room shook, right? Um, but here's the thing. So now, so once we get them at our feet, once we get black mothers, white whoever, white folks at our feet, what's our frame? What is our mm -hmm. context? What's our definition? That's what we don't have yet. And I think that um, when you talk about a conceptual framework, it means that the ideas and the notions are out there, but we haven't necessarily defined who we are and what we do. It's kind of been just, and, and again, when we look at women, Ella Baker, Supreme Court, those women, even Harriet Tubman, we have a lot on her but it's still not, we don't have, like, a lot of their personal stories. Like, how did they do what they did? How did you make that thing pop, right? So, mm -hmm. and what made me think about this was um, Kimberly Crenshaw um, that runs the African American Policy Forum, um, mm -hmm. and she's really the, been the spearhead around this Say Her Name work. Um, but, but I was at a, she did a, they had an art show, a fundraiser, and at the end she came out and she asked everyone to stand. And it was mostly women in the audience, um, in a probably about 75 women actually in the audience. So she said, I want everyone to stand. She said, now, when I say a name that you don't know, I want you to sit down. So she said all these names of brothers, and then she said some names of sisters. So by the time she got to the end of her list, there were only two women standing. Now, what happened is that we all knew the names of the brothers who had been killed by police or had suffered some type of violence from police brutality, right? But most of us did not know the sisters. The two women mm -hmm. who were left standing were two of the mothers of two of the sisters who had been killed by police. And she said to us, she said, you know why? She said, it's not because we're in this room and we don't care about, because it's obvious that we all care about civil rights, activism, like we're down in this room on that. But we don't have a frame. 
we don't have a context. So there's a na- narrative out there about black mothers, and you brought up one, which was in the Reagan era in the 70s, but Reagan was actually building off of former work. So there's mm-hmm. always been this um, propaganda um, and building these master narratives, these um, hegemonic narratives to um, police the black woman's body, to make her labor um, not her own, and to devalue her worth socially across the board within her own group and outside of her group. So those um, definitions and those narratives, I think we have to raise those up first and look at them and figure out how are we connecting ourselves to those narratives. So like I was hanging out, I told you I was hanging out with my daughters today. They're 12. They didn't have school today. Um, and I, from, their, from my understanding today for uh, this public school system um, was a recognition of, the, of a Jewish holiday. They didn't have school today, um, and so they wanted to get their hair done. So I have this thing about hair, right? I have a thing about hair. But I am trying not to impose my thinking onto my daughters, right? So that's me breaking away from the way that I was raised. And they wanted to get their hair done a certain way, and I'm like, okay, I have to allow that to be, right? So the, the, what they do, their, their culture and their subculture – um, in the music they listen to, what they watch, I have to be very careful about not demonizing young black sisters that they look up to. So we kind of have to talk about it, but I still have to give them the room to be who they want to be. Because we're at a, you know, at a place now where um, the politics of respectability that worked for us in the 50s, um, that worked for us, um, probably during Reconstruction, are not necessarily working for us now because we have more, there's more involved in being black, being, um, uh, navigating your blackness, being uh, of the gender, right? So gender, race, all of those are social, con- that's social constructs, so man-made, right? But there's more of it. So there's more ways of thinking about who you are and your identity. So I say all that to say that we have to really come full circle around identifying what the narratives are and how we may or may not be feeding into those very narratives. So and I talk about, um, uh, well, I haven't talked about it, but um, right now um, I'm separated and I'm co-parenting. but I've noticed that if I talk to some of my sister friends who are in relationship, and when I talk about my children going away for the summer to be with their dad, you know, there's a little funk pushback on that. Like, oh, you get mm. the whole summer to yourself, you know what I mean? But then, it's, mm. you know, you, there's another way that you have in your relationship as well. But I think that whole idea to me, I follow that thread back to that idea of the single black mother. You know, she's never good enough. She's always doing something she's not supposed to do. She needs to keep her legs closed. You know, all of the narratives out there, but those are narratives that were created and designed by an oppressive force. They were not our narratives. 
So what are yeah. they, right? So where do we start? Mm-hmm. And you've been doing some research and, and conversations with folks to document what the narratives are. I would love to hear yeah. you have. So far, I know you're, you, you're writing about this and, and launching Black Activist Mothering. would love to hear if you have um, some learnings thus far um, or at least some thoughts about what are the narratives, like what are the counter-narratives that we have that we can link up to, go deeper on, um, like learn from? Yeah, I would say that Holly Berry, you know, jump into pop culture, Holly Berry and Erica Badu would, would be what I would say two counter-narratives or two examples of a counter-narrative to single, single black women having babies out of wedlock, wedlock or having more than one baby daddy, right? Um, but is that necessary? Whose narrative is that? So you're not worth as much if you're single and you have three children and three different fathers as a black woman who is married with three children and one father. That to me is that narrative counter narrative. Mm-hmm. And how do we right. fall into it and actually utilize it as yes. one another? Yes. Yes, and I think that when we start having those conversations, and even um, like at the keynote, I um, strategically invited some queen mothers from the community, some elders from the community, young women, um, and then there were just the women who came and folks who came who already knew about um, Small Seeds, um, uh, this organization here in Pittsburgh. And it was really interesting to hear, you know, when – um, I said to the elders in the room, I said, I just came back from D.C., and I was in the room with a bunch of nation builders, right? And uh, there were elders in my group. We were talking about education, and a sister has developed this app, and the app is a behavior app, and it helps um, youth really look, up, look at and think about uh, young girls specifically about, you know, rape and, um, you know, just their bodies and how they handle it. And so the – particular um, icon that um, she used for her app is Maya Angelou. So I said, that's powerful, right? Uh, definitely, you know, all respect due. But what about if we use little Kim? And, you know, the elders, they, they didn't want to hear that at first. Like, it took them a minute to even hear mm-hmm. that I was saying little Kim, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so now my I can position imagine. Is, is that, Right, like I'm not saying condoning or not about little Kim and what, but what I am saying is, is that if we're trying to reach our youth, and our youth are listening to little Kim or know of little Kim or whatever, we have to be able to meet them at that space and talk about the black body in a way to say, well, yeah. Of course that happened with little Kim, and of course that was happening with black women because our bodies have started off in this space in America as um, descendants of enslaved people and enslaved people as a commodity. So the fact that you could uh, carry a seed and bear a child 
was a commodification. We needed you to have children to make the country great. So if you had five or six or seven different bucks, as they would call it then, the buck could even have been your brother. It wasn't about, it was about what buck and what woman are going to make the best. Yeah. Yeah, the buck and the breeder. Yeah. And that was legalized. So now when we fast forward to today and we look at the same situation, it's not okay right now. Okay, I'm not saying that it is, but I'm saying that we need to investigate those narratives. Yeah, it sounds like these na- investigation of the narratives needs to happen on multiple levels, right? I hear you talking yes. about the role of, like, intergenerational conversations where you have yes. elders who have grown up um, Within a different, it was a different movement, a different time, right? Civil rights yes. movement was really about respectability. It was from centered in the church, so you have all the religious kind of doctrine informing what it meant to be, you know, a good quote unquote black woman and a good black man and what a black family looks like. And it was all, mm-hmm. you know, it was like really informed by you know religion, religious doctrine, and even within religious doctrine, right? There's lots of. Um, there's also there's lots of narratives about like the body and women's ability and freedom and flexibility and all of that, right? Right. And so then when you layer on blackness on top of what religious doctrine already says about feminine power and sexuality and any of that, um, it's already intended to be you have to be modest, right? And then when you put blackness <laughs> on top of that, it's like even more like the requirements of modesty are increased. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think about, like, right now, like, the current conversation about, like, Teacher Bay. Remember, the teacher, I think, in Atlanta, a a courageous, you know, beautiful black sister who's, like, young, and, like, she wears the same kind of clothes that are on on models, and because she has a curvier body or curvier figure, that she's been accused of, like, dressing inappropriately and being fined or penalized (laughs) by the school district. And it's, like, so that's when I'm, like, when you layer on, you know, you already have respectability politics and you already have kind of religious doctrine about the female body. Right. And then, and then you layer on blackness, like uh, the expectations are even higher. So, so I wonder if that's what the the dialogue happening intergenerationally. um, And then also just across kind of time span. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's a both. And I think that basically what I'm understanding is I don't believe we can go forward because we don't have a frame and we don't have a context. And in order to establish that frame and context, we have to um, investigate the narrative mm-hmm. around all those layers that you described, you know, the blackness, being a mother, you know, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Everything has to be investigated. Mm. And it sounds like, um, like it reminds me of Sankofa, right, that we have to mm. look at the past and reflect and learn from it while also creating the future. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, I think there's a both and in terms of exploring the narratives, exploring the, na- the narratives, developing counter narratives, um, mm-hmm. learning from the past and the context, right? Like so learning from our elders, learning from our history from before, before we became enslaved, right? Like what did mothering look like on the continent of Africa? Um, and like what are some of those um, ancestral and kind of cellular DNA 
types of mothering stories that we that I didn't even know about, right? Like you telling me the story about the quilt. I'm like, oh, that's my sister does that. Or, you know, the, <laughs> yes. so that, like actually this is, you know, it's in our cellular DNA. It's in our memory, right? Someone told me mm-hmm. that if we can remember, if we can remember the trauma of like the, the, if we can remember the trauma of slavery and never experienced it, we can also remember it's in our body, the exactly. powerful joys of, of blackness. And so even black yes. mothers. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it is situated in the past, learning from the past, but I think there's something that I think I'm hearing you talk about in the articulation of it today that has to take into account today, right? So that we have to take into account how blackness is being defined today. What does it mean to be black um, and young in today's times, right? That there's different uh, role models. There's different folks that our children and young folks look up to who don't fit the, you know, the respectability politics of our elders um, of the civil rights movement. When I think about the Black Lives Matter movement now and I think about the civil rights movement, the, the energies are different, the place of origin mm-hmm. is different, and, like, at the same time, fighting for black liberation, right? So it's not like we – maybe in different ways, different strategies, different approaches, but with, the, like, everybody wanting the angle of black liberation and that it's not – just because it's being done differently doesn't mean there's no homage or respect for the past. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, just hearing you say, like, we need to learn from our past and we need to be rebuilding and reclaiming the narratives and looking at when our narratives as a people, as black folks, like when our narratives actually are used, are so heavily influenced by the, by the main hegemonic narrative, right? Exactly. And when we use those against each other, right? Like when Lil' yeah. Kim can't be seen as, as the proper role model, but it has to be like Amaya Angelou, who... I believe was like an honest person who mentioned that she actually was a prostitute at some point in her life. Right. And like very public about that. So, um, yeah, just thinking about like what does respectability politics even look, look like back then. Right. Um, exactly. Exactly. And even that whole notion again. So I, I, people have to miss me, you know, with those, you know, like the whole prostitution. So in my Angelo's time, we have to remember that during the Great Migration, when black folks were coming up out of the south into the north, there was a whole economy of organizations or businesses, whatever you want to call them, temp agencies, that were a front for prostitution. So most of the time the sisters would get up to the north and go apply and get to somebody's house, and you might have to do something that you didn't think you was going to have to do. Ella Baker showed us that. She did, went undercover and found that there was even in New York almost like a, a slave auction block where sisters would be up there to be hired to go do day work, but when they would get there, that day work might turn into something else. Mm. Right? And you would come up from the south and go into a brothel and didn't know that you were in a brothel. So even my Angela saying that she was prostituting, I'm willing to believe or bet that the majority of those sisters that got there and became that didn't know that that's what they were getting into, number one. We know that. And then after they got there, it was just, you know, you had to make it. And then let's remember the first great migration was in the middle of what? the Great Depression. So there was a a whole notion and physical aspects of scarcity. 
but they still continued and they still did nation building. That's the power. Hmm. That's yeah. where we come from, right? That's what's in our DNA. So, yeah, so I call them the warrior sisters, the sisters that are on the pole right now. I'm not really, am I saying that that's, a, I don't, you know, I'm not passing. I'm saying that we have to contextualize it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I hear you saying you're not passing judgment, right? And that if we're talking about, for me, parents and for liberation, if we want to get free, we got to get all of us free. And so <laughs> we can't choose, pick and choose who we're going to say, oh, that person deserves to be free because they, you know, they're middle class, professional, working folks. They don't know. We want to get free. We want to liberate our people. We have to be willing to liberate everyone. And I think that's one of the pieces that I admire about the Black Lives Matter movement is that it doesn't matter, you know, if the police shoot you and you are doing something, quote, unquote, illegal. Right? There's no respectability. It doesn't matter who you are, that you have exactly. a right to live. Your human right matters. And your black, your black identity matters. And it doesn't matter. We're not only going to stand up and march and protest for the, quote, unquote, respectable black Negro, but that we are going <laughs> to stand up and fight for all black folks. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. I hear that. I hear the no judgment. Absolutely. Yeah. And I can't, you know, it's never going to be an issue for me if there's a black person engaging in um, the underground economy when there is no equity in economics. Right. So, yeah, I'm not going to look at someone that's doing something that you say they're not supposed to be doing or that's illegal and say, oh, yeah, you know, that's, what can I say? I can't, you know, because the whole bootstrap is a myth, right? Pull yourself up by the bootstrap, meritocracy. Mm-hmm. It's a myth. It doesn't exist. Black folks don't even have boots sometimes. Like, seriously. <laughs> like, how are we going to, yeah. And that just notion, just like, yeah. When people yeah. are hoarding boots and have stolen boots. <laughs> And we don't even get any, right? And okay. like all jokes aside, I'm so serious, right? So I, I don't believe exactly. And I will say, like this has been a learning edge for me. Um, so it took me some time, I'll just say, to unlearn. And I invite folks to unlearn with me um, some of the like, you know, internalized racial oppression, like this sense of we are inferior, but we have to fight harder and try harder, and all we got to do is keep trying and dress the right way and use the proper language. And, mm-hmm. and it's really kind of one of the impetus of me actually doing this podcast and starting Parenting for Liberation is because with everything that was happening in the world with, you know, Trayvon Martin being killed in a, in a gated mm. community, and I'm like, I don't live in a gated community, but I live in the suburbs, right? So I'm like, that could be my son one day. Or from Samir Rice mm. playing in the park with a toy gun. And I'm like, we have a playground right here. And my son has toys that look like could be potentially toy guns. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there was like all these things that I started to be like, oh, I started to say, oh, well, none of these things that I'm doing to help my son is actually going to save him. But I was still doing it. Mm. I was still telling him, pull your pants up, dress this way, speak this kind of way, work on your full sentence. Like I was just just kind of drilling in on him in a way that wasn't really helping him. It was actually making him be more fearful and not as liberated. And I was wondering, like, why does he seem so um, 
why, where's his confidence going? Like, I was just really like, what's going on with him? He lacks confidence. He doesn't look people in the eye when he talks to them. And I realized that me and all these rules to make him safe were, like, beating down on him and beating down on his spirit. Mm. And so this podcast is kind of like an unlearning for me, which is why I'm like, let me talk to all the mamas and the daddies and the black parents, the black aunties and uncles, whoever, um, who are raising black children. Let me talk to them and see how they're doing it. Because I was like, oh, I'm messing up because all of my respectability wasn't going to get my son freedom or get him safe. Mm. So I was like, let me shift that to a place of liberation. So I hear you talking about your conversation with your daughters today, or even like you trying to intentionally not kind of indoctrinate them with the way you were raised. And I think that's me trying to unlearn not to do that to my son and my daughter right now. It's like, oh, how do I not push some of that stuff down? Down the throat because it's actually not worth it. Yeah, and it's and it's very very difficult. And I think that again, when we talk about because here's the conundrum, right? So race doesn't exist. It's no such thing. But racism and white supremacy go hard. So it's like mm-hmm. you're you're in between something that is totally not a reality and something that is a lived and experienced reality on a daily basis. Then on top of that, and this is what they understood way back before us, right? And on top of that, then you're a woman. So the whole, even the gender, right, that doesn't exist. But Mm -hmm. what does exist is that there's this notion or this physicality of being female and the biological physicality of being male. Mm-hmm. So we're navigating and negotiating all of that on a daily basis. And then as soon as we place our children into the public school system, they're negotiating and navigating that at five. Right. Right. Right? So mm-hmm. I, I remember it was a sister and I, we were working together, and I came in. She was the principal at the school, and I came in consulting with um, a community-based organization that was providing services in the school. I'm like a mediation of alternative to discipline kind of program. And we were working with, it was the elementary school, we were working with the fifth, sixth, and seventh, no, no seventh graders, so fifth and sixth graders, or fourth and fifth and sixth graders. And I had to walk by the kindergarten class to get to the fifth graders to look in on them. And I see this little brilliant, I, I started calling him, I wrote about him as the professor, sitting out at the table. And his whole body, everything about him just made me want to just hug him and love him up. And so I go over there and I said, why are you sitting out here? And he said, my teacher said, I don't follow instructions. I said, you're five. What do you mean you don't follow instructions? He said, well, he said, I don't. She wants me, and he had the paper in front of him. I'm supposed to trace these letters. I said, well, we're going to find something else to do. Because he was way beyond freaking tracing letters. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right? Because when we went down to the office, what did he do? He took a business card, looked at it one time, and then recited back to me the slogan on the uh, business card. Mm. 
He he mm. was far beyond a stupid paper tracing your letters on it. <laughs> like he was he was doing worksheets when he was six months old, right? I mean that's that's what he came there already ready to do bigger mm. and greater work. But the system isn't designed for that. So when I said the principal and I were tag teaming, so when I went to her and carried it to her, she said, okay, so this is how it starts. I said, what you mean, sis? She said, this is how it starts. This is how the discipline issue starts in kindergarten. And the teacher, a white teacher, has decided that that is her space and that he does not belong. Mm. Right? And so from then on, we started talking to teachers like this about, you're a public servant. This space belongs to the children and their families. A public school, this is their space. So what are you going to do to ensure that this child stays in his space? Wow. Right, so it's a whole... Right. But that's, to me, that's all about it. Yeah, it's the it's the black activist mother. And now the sister, the principal, younger than I am, we in two different generations. She doesn't have any children. I have six, but she's raising her nephew with her mom. Mm. So when she's looking at the children in the school, she sees them totally different from another person who may be. And I'm not even saying because we already know Baltimore taught us this that you can have an entirely black school and still have a high rate of discipline disparity for black kids, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's not really about, it's about how are you performing whiteness? How are you performing white supremacy, even if wow. you're not white? Oh, that is a question. Can you repeat that question just for everybody <laughs> who's listening? So it's how are you as a black person performing whiteness and how are you performing white supremacy? Yes, get off the stage, right? black people. Get <laughs> off the stage. What? We have, and that's what I'm saying. We can't have these conversations. We can't keep creating this, this, this work without investigating the narrative. Because we don't know, right? If you mm. don't know your history and if you don't mm-hmm. know another context and you've been indoctrinated and brought up, and this is the way, right? The, and that this is the truth, right? You just named the social construct that race doesn't exist, but racism does exist, right? That gender doesn't exist, but uh, bio, biology and like female male bio, biology exists, and that's it, right? And so, but when that's all you know, mm-hmm. because that's what's all around, it's like being a fish swimming in water. Yeah, contaminated. You don't know that it's contaminated until you, like someone says, "Oh, well, you know." We actually have yes. something else for you. So this is why we need you to get this stuff documented. <laughs> I, I need, I need you to get this documented. How are you doing it? How can folks help? Um, is there like, yes, are you so, interviewing folks? Are you talking to folks? What do you need so that we can get this documented? Because, you know, if it's not in the book, it's not real, according to, you know, the United States. Yeah, that's what they say, isn't it? So I think it's um, next steps for me, really. So this is a way of me kind of, Um, taking it out to the community to say, you know, what do you think? You know, do you think that this is something worth putting um, energy into? And then if it is, 
then let's tell our stories. But not um, the elder told me one day, she said, I'm, I'm tired of telling stories. I've been telling stories, and the community still looks the same. So I'm not saying telling stories just to be telling stories, but telling stories for liberation. So when we're and, – and that's my push with restorative justice. When I look at restorative justice, I look at, as a, at, look at it as a systems tool. So not just, you know, so me and Trina, we, you know, we, we beefing, so we need to sit down and kind of work this out, and we may need somebody to help us do that. No, I'm talking about once Trina and I figure out why we got issues with each other, then how are we going to make that um, liberatory for our community? Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? So whatever work you're doing, if you're the health person, if you're the social work person, whatever your work is out in the community, my challenge to you is when you're looking at those stories, follow those stories around. What is it really connected to? How is what's going on keeping us in an enslaved condition? So the wow. next step really is to not only have people come and talk about their stories, but really kind of, you know, what Satima Clark said, it, it, it's not really about getting people to go vote. She said they got to be able to pass the test when they go to the voting table. So it's the same with us. It's not so much about, you know, we have to get out there and protest around what's going on, but we have to help people be prepared around why are we protesting. And I think to do that is about really telling what Bernice Regan really, Dr. Bernice Regan talked about the Sweet Honey and the Rock founder, is this idea of cultural autobiography. So where's your cultural capital? Where's your social capital? That's what we have to really depend on to get the work done without having to be dependent on outside entities helping us get it done. You said who? You said you're going around the community and sharing it out and seeing if this resonates and if folks think this is important and want this, and I want to give you a resounding yes, 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 <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, we do need that. I think I'm hearing you say that it's an invitation for folks to to join, support, tell their stories in a way um, that pays it forward, that helps folks be able to situate, yes. situate their current conditions with some within a historical and cultural political context. Um, yes. And how? And are you capturing these stories? Is there a place? I know you're launching um, Black Activist Mothering. Is there a way for folks to actually think of? Oh, yes, yeah, thank you. So, yes, yeah, so there is a website. Um, it's blackactivistmothering.com. Um, and on there, what will start to unfold on that website is more um, around what we're talking about, so folks telling their stories. But telling the way that they're going to be telling stories, we're going to be connecting those stories to um, a historical component and then also to um, a way of moving forward politically and economically. That was awesome. So folks, check out blackactivistmothering.com. Feel free to sign up to tell your story. And then what are you hoping to be your end goal with the collection of stories? Oh, my goodness, yes. Yeah. So I would love um, for it to become a learning tool, a documentary that's a learning tool, so it comes with um, an educational toolkit. Um, 
again, and the idea would be to really help folks do what they're already doing and kind of add this to their toolbox. Um, yeah, so a way of us, I don't know, capitalizing on what we do naturally, which is to tell stories. Oh, I'm so excited for that. <laughs> yeah, I um, am as well. And I want to figure out a way for us to support each other in that um, because I think it's important, it's necessary. I think think when you say that you're raising six kids and you feel alone, I think that a lot of folks feel that way. A lot of parents feel that way. I know I feel that way sometimes. Even with a partner, you still feel alone sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, Or like you're the only one doing it this way or that you're crazy because you're doing it this way, (laughs) especially if you're trying to break the the mold and break some um, habits that you've learned. Like, I don't want to parent the way that my mom did this or that um, because you're trying to do it different. And so you really feel like... Um, I'm tripping out. Why am I doing it this way? So that's what I'm hoping to have with the podcast is that folks can hear and be affirmed in their parents and for liberation, even if it's different and it doesn't fit the mold, um, that parents and for liberation might look and feel different because we're, we're trying to parent for a different purpose, um, not to make our kids listen to us or tell, do what we say to do, but actually <laughs> to be free children, um, to be liberated and to love themselves and all their unique black brilliance right and so absolutely so i'm excited for your work to come out to continue to supplement and provide more tools um and actually just to affirm us right to just see our parenting to see our mothering reflected back in a way that affirms like that's we we've been on the right path and this path is connected to a long lineage and history from our ancestral dna and so i'm excited for bam I am as well, and I really um, am grateful for your platform, um, Trina, and definitely any way, um, most definitely linking um, um, Parenting for Liberation uh, to the website and in any way that we can be connected in the future. I'm so excited about that. Yes. Sisterhood, link up. Yes. We'll be be bamming it and P4Ling it. (laughs) That's right. Um, I'm going to close unless you have, I don't know if you have any kind of last remaining tips or suggestions or anything for our folks. No, just blessings, just blessings upon blessings. Thank you. Thank you so much.